0: These kind of guidelines, I think, are relevant to our conversation in terms of what does a CFO have to be cognizant of when they're looking at an IPO in a, in a few years from now. So that was the eye, you know, in the bank. And then finally is your target burn, where it says that you have to be very careful about who you hire because with software companies, of course, hiring is one of the biggest pieces of your spending as well as perhaps marketing. That's the current thinking in terms of really being careful about where you spend the money. And I know your company, Danny, provides very helpful tools for CFOs, managers to basically manage the expenses, yes. So a lot of these tools and systems come into play as the company grows, of course.
1: Hi, I'm Danny, And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole or what we call spend culture. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. Uh, this is Danny, and today we have another special guest today here. Please welcome Barry Johansson. He is currently the CFO in Action IQ. Welcome, Barry. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: But well, Thank you for having me.
1: Amazing. I know that you have been a CFO for many years at many successful SaaS companies. Can you give us a little bit of a background to your roles and reflection on your past roles?
0: Sure. I started my career auditing large multinationals like Prudential Financial. And from there, I worked uh, for a number of years at Oracle as a financial analyst. And then from there, I joined my first IPO company, a networking company called Castel. The company went public in the mid-1990s. And from there, I was hired at Saba Software. Saba was an e-learning, human capital management company, and I was the CFO of the company, Saba, and we went public in 2000. Saba had a large operational uh, footprint. We had a large implementation team, so I was very much involved with managing the consulting side of the business. Saba was an enterprise software company. And we had grown substantially in the course of like three years. We had grown up to 700 employees and we were doing around $75 million of revenue. Of course, Saba was a fantastic experience, successful IPO. From Saba, I joined a startup to take them public, a data integration company called SmartDB, SmartDB. And what happened was that um, around 2000, 2001, the recession came and large system integrators stopped doing those large integration projects. So basically, I was instrumental as the CFO of SmartDB to uh, sell the company to Tipco. And then I worked as a divisional CFO for Tipco for a number of years. From there, I joined another a security startup, and basically, same thing happened. We merged that company, and it was purchased by uh, Freescale Semi. Again, I worked for Freescale Semi as a divisional CFO for a couple of years. From there, I've had a number of startups that have been so. These startups, most of them have been have had fantastic exits. One A good example is Nets Documents. It was a content management company, a SaaS content management company. Basically, I was hired to sell the company, raise some money and sell the company. And we were able to successfully do that. It was sold to a large private equity firm, Clear Lake. And then after that, I was involved in some other startups. But in terms of success stories, a genomic data company. This was a SaaS platform to analyze genomic data that comes out of sequencing machines. The company was called Bina, and we sold that company to Roche. That was another very successful exit. So that's a mix of experience that I bring to the table. Obviously, I'm a very strong accountant, but of course, I over the years, I've learned a lot about business models and companies hire me to perhaps take them public, perhaps raise money for them, or perhaps, you know, sell them. So hopefully that that helps in terms of my background.
1: Yeah, thank you so much Barry. You've clearly led many uh, successful exits with many companies and have a very impressive track record. So I think the audience will be really happy to hear a lot of experience today at the podcast. And audience is probably aware today's episode is all about what CFOs and executives need to know before going public. So let's jump right into it. So one of my first questions for you Barry is what kind of leadership uh, public company investors usually look for when it comes to approaching an IPO?
0: Yeah, so public investors, right, they're looking for a management team that can accurately, strongly describe the current financial performance, but also a future direction. So all of this comes back in terms of public investors, a key theme with public investors, which really Goes back to your question in terms of what kind of leadership do public investors look for is this theme about predictability. Predictability of a business is a key theme for public investors, because if a company's performance is lumpy, that's telling these investors that the management team doesn't know what to expect and is not in control of the results and this will uh, diminish valuation will make investors skittish and diminish valuation and open the company's stock price to volatility so in terms of leadership right a a company that is looking to go public and of course the cfo has a big role here, right? Because as a CFO, obviously you need to clearly, you need to manage expectations, street expectations, the board expectations. You need to manage that with the progress that the company is making. And this includes being able to identify revenue growth and a stagnation perhaps, uh, illustrate strengths in the cash flow, and perhaps weaknesses in cash flow. So in terms of leadership, of course, the CFO has a big role in terms of predictability. So the CEO and the CFO are the key. Of course, uh, public investors need to be able to trust, right, the CEO and the CFO. Mm -hmm. And you can start creating this trust with public investors before going public a year or two before by starting to write, uh, talking with the investors in terms of what the management team has done in terms of their historical financials, how they've been able to break through and um, you know grow their revenues. So that's a key part of the leadership team and what can be done prior to the IPO to create that trust and respect with, you know, public investors. But of course, apart from the CEO and the CFO, investors are looking for strong leadership in product, in sales, in marketing to manage an ever growing revenue base to come out with new features and new products. So that strong leadership team is key. And of course, I mean, another piece of this, another view of this is that public investors, investors in general, right, uh, they want to have good stewards of their investments. And the leadership team, again, it goes back to the CEO and the CFO, need to really understand, right? They need to prove to these public investors that they really understand, deeply understand the business of the company. So hopefully that gives you some, perspective.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting to us because uh, we're like nearing a series B right now. And um, we're just thinking about, you know, we have got to hire the right leaders so that eventually if we do decide to exit or decide to go public, we have the leadership in place so that our investors are also um, very confident that we're able to get to that process. So I guess um, a follow up question to that is let's talk about the role of the CFO a little bit. So how do you think a CFO should work? with the board and investors to ensure that this kind of um, financial compliance and this whole profitability is clear set from the beginning?
0: Again, I'm going to focus on the SaaS world. Within SaaS, even when you're a Series B or Series C, perhaps you're doing $15 million of what is called ARR, annual recurring revenue. There are all kinds of guidelines that perhaps VCs, primarily VCs, have come up with based on public company data. So there are guidelines around growth. So in terms of what is the role of the CFO in terms of the company itself, in the SaaS world, there are certain guidelines, key guidelines and yardsticks that you have to follow. So in terms of, so of course growth and getting to scale is really key, right? For any company that wants to go public. So in terms of growth, there's a guideline called the Mendoza line of growth. And basically what it tells companies, CFOs, CEOs, is that after you get to $10 million of what is called ARR, annual recurring revenue, every year, you typically you're gonna grow between 80 to 85% of the prior year. So the top tier of SaaS, cloud, subscription-based companies, based on this formula, get to $100 million of ARR within five years. So that's the top tier, right? Of course, and with SaaS or with any business, it's not so much the revenue milestones that you're going to meet, right? It's the velocity, how fast your revenue is growing, which affects your valuation. Because as a VC, as a private equity investor, even as a public investor, you're looking at a internal rate of return, right? You're looking at, at a return on your investment. So how fast you grow is really key in SaaS and in any business. In fact, McKinsey did a study of public companies, and uh, the effect of growing your revenue is twice than the effect on, on your valuation, than the effect of growing your margins, in the SaaS world, in terms of SaaS public companies, every 1% increase in net retention. So net retention in the SaaS language is how much are you expanding your revenue from your existing base, less any revenue that you lose to churn, lost customers. That's called net retention. With public SaaS companies, every 1% improvement you can make in your net retention that increases your valuation by $100 million. <laughs> wow. And this was from Bessemer. So this is the study that Bessemer, a, v- a famous VC in the Valley did. So obviously growth is key in terms of what are the guidelines? What are the strategies? What are the philosophies that a CFO needs to follow? Mm-hmm. But also escape, you know, to be, to be looking at an IPO. At the time of the IPO, minimum, the company has got to be doing $100 million of ARR and be growing at 30% plus. The company uh, needs to have a clear line of sight to a billion dollars of revenue. That's what these public investors are looking at. Mm -hmm. So you need to be able to clearly prove to investors that you are the kind of company to get a billion dollars of revenue. Another key thing getting ready to go public is public investors. Of course, they're going to look at your market opportunity. And of course, they want to find companies that have a open and huge TAM, total available markets. Because if a company has a huge TAM, even if the company penetrates a relatively a small portion of that TAM, still the company can become a franchise. Uh, so TAM is very important in terms of how public company investors look at a prospective IPO. Also, the competitive landscape, if there are low barriers to entry, if there are many companies, many competitors in your space, that is a big negative Unless perhaps you have been able to build a moat like a, through a network effect, or perhaps you are somebody like Workday and you're taking out a dominant player like Oracle. So that, of course, you know, comes into it too, but also your product, right? In terms of your product, you know, public investors, they don't want to invest, you know, their one pony kind of product company, Mm -hmm. right? And particularly with SaaS enterprise companies, is the land and grab kind of well-known kind of a strategy, right? Where you find a beachhead in a segment of your customer base, you're getting there. Then basically what you do, you add, you expand your product features, but coming up with new feature packages for your product. At the same time, you're isolating, you're getting a foothold in the enterprise. You're isolating your competitors. You're also upselling and cross-selling into existing base. And of course, by doing that, you're also saving sales and marketing money because you're already in that existing customer base, which really feeds into your thesis that, your margins can grow and you can become profitable. So the strategy around your product in terms of your growth is obviously very important too. In terms of another theme that the CFO, of course, has to be thinking about is cash and that public investors look at is cash and profitability. So public investors at IPO, they expect a company to have sufficient cash on its balance sheets to get to break even within a year or two without any of the IPO money. And I say a year or two depending on market conditions, whether you know it's a risk on or risk off kind of markets. The IPO capital raised, the way investors look at that is as a reserve. Or perhaps a pool or perhaps capital to increase growth and revenues. But a company needs to have sufficient cash to get to break even. Public company investors are looking for a self-sustaining business. The last thing you want to do when you go public is to go back to public markets and try to raise additional capital. That's going to be a disaster, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, I said cash and also, you know, profitability. So, You may have heard, I'm sure your audience has heard of the latest revenue recognition pronouncement, AASC 606. Basically, for SaaS businesses, it accounts for mismatches, which is innate in a SaaS business when it comes to upfront sales and marketing expenses and the time of delivery of services. It accounts for that. So, for instance, you can kind of amortize your sales commissions over the term of a subscription contract versus your expenses getting hit when you pay those commissions, as an example. But still, public company investors are going to assess a SaaS company in terms of free cash flow as a metric of profitability, if you like. Mm So there are different uh, themes and philosophies and guidelines that a SaaS CFO, the SaaS management team needs to be looking at in terms of managing a company financially towards an IPO. We talked about growth. Another really important rule for SaaS companies is called the uh, 40% rule, which what that means is at any point in time, if you add up how much your revenues are growing, and how much you're losing as an EBITDA, when you add those two numbers up, is 40%. So basically, you can be growing your revenues at 100%, and you could be losing 60% in EBITDA. And you're within these guidelines in terms of a guidelines or framework, if you like. And as you know, a lot of SaaS companies that go public around $100 million, they are still losing money. They have great, perhaps top-line revenue growth, but their earnings margins are weak. And that's one of the reasons in the SaaS world and public investors have the same expectation. We measure because the earnings margins are not there and the company is losing money. Unit economics. With unit economics in a SaaS company, the losses, right, makes it very hard. You can't just look at a set of financial statements. When a SaaS company is losing millions of dollars, you can't really see the strength of the underlying business. That's why they knew, that's why these VCs came up with these unit economics. And two most important unit economics, and in my slide deck that I'll share with you and your audience is welcome to view it, two of these important matrix. one is the ratio of your customer lifetime value to your customer acquisition cost. So on average over the lifetime of a typical customer, how much revenues is that customer total dollars bringing you over its lifetime, if you like, versus the customer acquisition cost, how much you spend to a- acquire that customer. So that ratio of customer lifetime value versus CAC, customer acquisition cost should be as a minimum 3x. What that tells you is that this is a business that is a viable business. That's what it's telling you, right? Because if, let's say, your customer acquisition cost is higher than your customer lifetime value, your business right, is not a viable business ever. Mm -hmm. That's one key ratio. And then the other ratio is the CAC payback. How long does it take you when you close a deal, bring in a new customer, How long does it take you to pay back the cost of acquiring that customer? And typically, that's around 12 months. What that matrix tells you is how far away from profitability are you? So I can go on and on about different guidelines and yardsticks that we use in SaaS that you need to uh, use, right, to steer a company towards an IPO. But I hope this gives you a good perspective.
1: Yeah. I love how you broke down the language for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with SaaS and the terminology. So I really appreciate that. Those are really important metrics. I think a lot of, um, CFOs that need to know if they do want to also consult for SaaS companies. Like we are a SaaS company ourselves. So we definitely can relate to a lot of the metrics that you speak to here. And in terms of like what you mentioned for growth, when it comes to adding new products and trying out new marketing strategies, this all takes a lot of cash, and you mentioned cash and profitability. You have to have sufficient cash on hand. So how can a CFO's balance maintaining the growth of a company when it comes to company spending versus also ensuring that your burn rate is still healthy?
0: This is one rule that I mentioned in the previous segment, and it was the 40% rule. So that's a really key rule, right? As you're growing like companies you know, over $20 million, as you're growing, you have to keep an eye on this 40% rule, where if you add up your revenue growth percentage with the losses you have in EBITDA, it's not over 40%. That's a really key guideline, right? So that's number one. Mm -hmm. And number two, and this is really for private companies, but I think it's relevant to, to our conversation. As you know, there's talk, there are concerns around perhaps a slowdown or recession. So recently, Bessemer Venture Capital which is a leading SaaS, if you like, VC, came up with this new guideline called GRIT. GRIT is a guideline for their portfolio companies to go through perhaps this slowdown that may happen in nineteen or twenty or recession. Mm-hmm. And These VCs try to come up with acronyms, right? So each letter has a significance. So uh, G is for growth. We already talked about that. We talked about the Mendoza line of growth, right? That top tier SaaS companies get to $100 million of revenue within five or six years. So that's your growth. The next letter R is for retention. I did talk a little bit about net customer retention. Typically SaaS companies, they want to have a retention around 90%. That's a healthy retention. And they want to have a net retention So, retention, right, is net retention, as I described in the previous segment, is when you offset a lost revenue due to churn from your expansion revenue, which can result from upselling more users within your existing customers or perhaps selling your existing customer base additional new products, which is a cross-sell. So net retention around you know, 110%. That's the R. I is how much cash you have in the bank, and that's a key point. Given the current economic outlook, best is recommending that a startup should have between 18 to 24 months of cash on hand. So a lot of these guidelines. Applied to growing SaaS companies, this can be a fifty million dollar company, a pre-IPO company. So these kind of guidelines, I think, are relevant to our conversation in terms of what does a CFO have to be cognizant of when they're looking at an IPO in a, in a few years from now. So that was the eye, you know, in the bank, and then finally is your target burn, where it says that you have to be very careful about who you hire because with software companies, of course, hiring is one of the biggest pieces of your spending as well as perhaps marketing. That's the current thinking in terms of really being careful about where you spend the money. And I know your company, Danny, provides very helpful tools for CFOs, managers to basically manage the expenses. Yes, so Mm -hmm. a lot of these tools and systems come into play as the company grows, of course.
1: Yeah, that was a wonderful pitch for us. You did a great job there. So I think um, that's a really good segue into a uh, next question. Thank you so much for the insights on that. What are some financial processes, I guess, internally, beyond like just what the CFO does, but also in a financial operations team that companies can start to implement as they move towards?
0: Right. Again, so I'm going to focus on a SaaS business. So in a SaaS business, right? subscription management is key. So within your CRM you can capture subscription contracts, which is great. But you as you grow you also need systems that can manage changes in your subscription. For instance, we talked about upsells and cross-sells. So you may sign up a customer with an annual contract, but after 6 months want to buy additional seats. They want to buy additional products. And your subscription management system needs to be able to easily cater for these changes and make these changes seamlessly flow into your CRM and also your billing system. Mm -hmm. So an upcoming system that sits between your CRM and your ERP is Zora. And I've done a number of implementations of Zora. And of course, I'm not recommending Zora for every single company. There are certain advantages to having Zora. But the beauty of Zora is that, right, it's it's been built ground up as a subscription management system. So... When you're making these changes to a subscription contract, right? It's a native app in Salesforce. Mm -hmm. So it basically caters for order management. So when your rep is writing a proposal in Salesforce, you know, really they're doing it in Zora, in the background. So all that information kind of flows through into your billing system. And, of course, into your revenue module that I want to talk about a little bit uh, later in the context of the new RevRec pronouncement ASC 606, which is effective for public companies from Jan the 1st, '18 and for private companies from Jan the 1st, '19. So I'll come back to that you know, you have to spend some time and some capital, unfortunately, to get the right systems in place. So you can't really make a CRM like Salesforce your subscription management system. You could try, but it's not going to be an ideal situation. And of course, for a company that is looking to go public, creating this well-tried, well-tested financial operation is key. So for SaaS companies, these billing systems, these subscription management systems, because they're unlike a typical company. With typical companies, you sign a deal and the deal doesn't change, right? There's no renewals. There's no upsells. There are perhaps no terminations, like how a, a subscription contract is. So the billing system, the order management, uh, the subscription management, which which really feeds into all your KPIs, all your matrix, right? That is key for a CFO. And that's one of the things I typically do for companies. That's one of the first things companies ask me to help them with is to set up their KPIs, their matrix or their dashboard. Mm-hmm. Having a system like Zora, and I'm not trying to downplay other systems like Intact or NetSuite that offer similar solutions or even Salesforce Salesforce has their CPQ, has a new billing, subscription billing system. So a CFO really has to spend some time, get some expert help, get the management team together and really understand the needs of a company and choose the right system because you have many choices. But in terms of systems and processes, in the SaaS world, the subscription management is key. Now, if I may talk a little bit about this ASC 606. So this new reverie pronouncement, right, is not just an accounting issue. It affects your sales and marketing dynamics because in a SaaS business, the VP of sales may come up with a new promotion where they're going to discount so much. If the customer buys certain, certain package, of the product. And when that happens, unless you have a proper subscription management system and you have implemented ASC 606, you would be out of compliance with your CFO. Because if you wanna do this stuff manually, it's gonna be impossible. Because imagine, mm-hmm. let's look at a $50, 60000000 million company and these kind of dynamics that I just described, upsells, cross-sells, Discounting, a VP of sales may come with promote. It's going to happen all the time. So you need to have system. It can be done manually. So you have to have the right systems mm-hmm. to manage these changes. So with the SaaS company, the financial process and systems you have to, and people you have to set up uh, is more involved. And of course, the accounting systems. If you have a need for a consolidation, you need an ERP like intact. I've uh, implemented both Intact and NetSuite ERP systems, right? Um, in terms of, and of course, they have other modules, but in terms of systems, you know, I, these are the, all the financial operations, right? So to be ready for an IPO, you need to have the right uh, finance uh, staff. You need to have the right financial policies, procedures, and systems in place, And you need to have tested these a year or two before going public, because that's the only way this testing and verifying you can get to the speed and accuracy that is the threshold of a public company. That's the only way.
1: I think um, one follow-up question I have is, you know, a lot of CFOs in SaaS um, they talk about top-line growth, but also on the other hand, I'm curious to hear from your experience when it comes to tracking spending and cash outflows. What are some mistakes that SaaS CFOs usually make?
0: Yes, as you said, typically with SaaS companies, and I describe some of these new guidelines, like grit, right, where you have to be careful where you spend your money. I explain. The rule of 40 that mix up how much you're growing versus how much you're losing money. So those are good guidelines, but also a key matrix that I keep an eye on in terms of expenses is the cash payback. Mm-hmm. So just imagine I'm building a five year plan for a 30, $40 million SaaS company. So from my point of view as a CFO, it's okay. For the company to spend money in growth and lose money and show a suboptimal cash payback. Remember previously in the previous segment, I was talking about cash payback, the time it takes to, right, recover your cost of sales and marketing Mm -hmm. within 12 to 18 months. That's the guideline. For me, it's okay if you go beyond that, provided within a couple of quarters, right, within a year or two, your expenses come down that ratio in terms of how productive your sales and marketing team is to come back to these 12 months or 18 months. So that's a really helpful, if you like, matrix KPI to keep an eye on when you're building a plan and managing at a high level the expenses of a business. So I think keeping an eye at a high level on that 40% rule, keeping an eye on the CAC payback. Yeah. Will be a good navigator for a CFO of when you're going to hit profitability, and the fact that in terms of spending money, in terms of expenses, going too far off from profitability. Another key part of you know SaaS businesses is the cost. If the company has implementation services, so and nowadays more and more investors are open to that because when a saas company is also offering implementation consulting services that helps the customer in terms of customer success but you don't want to go over 15 to 20% of your revenue mix in terms of your uh, implementation services so that affects your cogs and typically i report gross margins in terms of platform margins excluding implementation and support and consulting services. And then separately, report gross margins in terms of, if you like, you know, professional services. So that's a, COGS is a really important part of your, if you like, cost control, because a company that has no margins, you know, they're not getting to that 80% typical SaaS gross margin. That shows that the company is not going to be scalable. So, and that's a very negative view to, ha- to have on that. But also, I want to go back to your the key question you were asking in terms of how you manage your expenses. Of course, nowadays there are systems like yours, Danny, where you can you know approve. You know, there's expensified, There are more elaborate systems like yourselves, where somebody like myself or managers can approve expenses right before the employee goes out and spends the money. Of course, obviously, there are planning budgeting systems, so having a strong budgetary system like adaptive insights is also key, right, in terms of managing your expenses. Also, I'm a big believer in a, you know, every year as a CFO, I sit down to come up with a operating plan for the next year. To me, it's really key to do a three-year a strategic plan with the management team. Versus building out an operating plan by myself, right, or without having thought about, okay, what were their learning lessons in the previous year? If we want to get to the, let's say, $100 million of revenue in three years, right, what would that mean in terms of our average deal size? What would that in in terms of our marketing expense, what would that mean in terms of the money we have to put into our, our product roadmap? So I always do a three-year strategic plan before really jumping into the numbers in terms of an operating plan. So I think doing a spending the time upfront to to think through. Yes, we want to get to hundred million dollars of revenue but what are they, and flushing that out, what are the costs, expenses for us between to, to get there and then having the right systems like yourself, like a good budgeting system like a good ERP system like Intac or NetSuite are key, of course.
1: I really think um, you made a really good point there because you mentioned that it's not just um, the CFO, but you also want to get other people on board. I think that's a really good segue into the concept of spend culture in itself, which we based the podcast off of. So what we believe is, is like every company, they have their own culture, obviously. That's usually something that attracts a lot of employees to work at the company. But also on the other hand, there's also a spend culture. So Let's go back to speaking in SaaS. So in SaaS, I believe that, um, a lot of people, they tend to want to hold back on spending the company's money or vice versa. They want to keep on injecting cash into whatever operations, wherever projects that they have in order to basically grow the company to a higher standard. So what do you think the spend culture of a SaaS company is usually like? And how do you think the employees can get on board with creating more of a healthier spend culture overall?
0: I think at the core of your question is the company culture that perhaps the CEO, the management team creates up front as long as possible, bootstrapping the company. So that's a a culture issue. And now as you grow, particularly in sales and marketing, you need to have the sales team. Let's say you guys are a series B company. Let's say, you know, you're doing, you're a B2B company. And basically with a series B, you need to have five to 10 reps at this stage of a series B with half of them ramped up. A series C, you need to have twice of twice as many reps with perhaps not only a VP of sales, but also a sales manager. As you get to perhaps $50 million in revenue, you need to start thinking about international a VP in EMEA, a sales team in EMEA, and perhaps more of a channel kind of go to market strategy. So as you're growing, you have to spend money on your sales and marketing mm-hmm. team. Same goes with your, depending on your growth, right? You have to spend money in terms of hiring the right engineers, in terms of hiring the uh, gradually, you know, in terms of the kind of revenue growth I just described, you need to start building up your sales operations team, your accounting team, your finance team. We talked about all those systems. So as you grow, there are certain areas that you uh, have to spend money on. It's just part of growing. And nowadays, at least I'm I'm based in Silicon Valley, and in Silicon Valley nowadays, there are certain expectations in terms of employees. A lot of companies provide, for instance, lunches, which you know helps the employee not to perhaps leave the office and you know work from the office. So that's obviously key. And then of course you know you, you need to start as the company grows. And I'm a big believer in policies. Maybe you know let's say the employee handbook. I think a lot of smaller startups you know don't spend the time to build an employee handbook, which can be a very simple, uh, really a management team kind of exercise where the company basically talks about its policies. You know, you're an employee that is traveling. This is our policy. Um, in the employee handbook, you can talk about your philosophy that, hey, we want to put our money into the health plans, the health insurance for employees, versus perhaps throwing, you know, expensive Christmas parties. So at the core of this is the company culture. And the tools are... And number one, right, is, you know, you have communication, right, with, with the employees. I think the employee handbook, frequent company meetings where you're communicating to the employees at a high level, your company's performance in terms of not just the revenues, but how you're managing your expenses, I think is key. And I know nowadays, you know, employees want to be involved in this kind of, you know, decision making in terms of how much you have to spend, right? So to grow this much, these are the investments we have to make, right? To grow lower or higher, the different levels of spending. But I think the culture that the CEO and the management team build is core to your question in terms of creating that culture of bootstrapping for as long as possible.
1: Absolutely. I love how you touch on the communication piece, because I think that's one thing a lot of companies, when they grow so quick, that they forget to do that. I know uh, we have this problem ourselves. We used to be like maybe 20 people, 50 people, now we're a hundred people. So making sure that each employee knows what the company stands for and how we believe that we should you know, spend our resources. I think that's super critical to building a stronger company together with your employees. So thank you so much for sharing that. Right. So I think that's all for today. For the audience who are listening today, I'm going to attach the PDF of your wonderful PowerPoint with the audience. And also, I'm going to do a summary of your points so that they are able to see the metrics that you mentioned and also the sources that you mentioned.
0: But that's fantastic. And if anybody has any questions, they can feel free to contact me.
1: Perfect. And I will leave Barry's email in the blog post below so that you guys can see it. Well, thank you so much, Barry, for your time today. And I'm sure the audience will find this super helpful as we have a lot of SaaS founders and CFOs always um, watching the show. Have a great day, Barry, and we hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Spend Culture Stories podcast, sponsored by Procurify. If you'd like to learn more about your spend culture, take our quiz at spendculture.com.